The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com guardian. One of the central questions of the book is, is bad luck self-harm by another name? Rachana is my age and my shape and my cousin. We are short, fat Indian girls in West Ham shirts and we are not in books. There's a moment where he says that, you know, when he walks past children's hospitals, he feels like this kind of sense of guilty relief because he's outgrown them. I don't think we should give people a voice. I think people need to find a voice and claim their voice. And that's what happens. People, people find their names in these stories. Whether fearing something brings on those fears is something that I try and ask. I don't necessarily have answers, but I ask the question. Why, I say, why is it a summer camp? Why is it America? Because stories are in America, says Rachana. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast with me, Claire Armistead. One of the criticisms levelled at literary journalists like me is that we review everything before real readers, those strange people who actually buy books to read for their own pleasure, have had a chance to get to them. So Richard Lee and I are devoting this week's programme to two books that featured in our own holiday reading. Richard has chosen the first short story collection from Kate Clanchy, I set off for rural France with the latest novel from Steve Toltz, an Australian writer I discovered seven years ago while scouting for the Guardian First Book Prize. To give you a flavour of Toltz's motor-mouth style, let's join his central character Aldo in a police interrogation room. I entered to see Aldo, greyhound thin, gripping the undersides of his chair as if he and the chair were hurtling through space. His hair was wet and combed back and looked like a kind of mould, and he was emitting an uneasy vigour and chattering like a small mob, explaining how he was ashamed of his long-held desire to see a mounted policeman thrown by his own horse. He turned away from Sergeant Oakes to give me a furtive hand gesture that looked like an aborted thumbs-up, but his eyes only lingered on my face long enough to convey vague disappointment, as if for a split second he thought I was coming in to tell him his bath was ready. Though the room was ice-cold and Aldo was in short sleeves, his face was sheened with sweat. Now he was saying he was tired of thoughts so self-pitying he believed he could hear God throw up in his mouth. Sergeant Oakes busted out a nervous laugh. Talk about your captive audience. Aldo knew we had to listen to everything he said in case it could be held against him in a court of law. He was disgusted at all the horrible pretend laughing he'd done in his life he said now, and was upset that he could derive pleasure only from the sight of the dogs of two introverts attacking each other in the street. Whether he was in the grip of a high still in its ascendance or having some kind of manic episode, he was shifting in the chair and shaking violently and picking at the skin on his forearm as if ants were strutting on it, seemingly set upon the Herculean task of emptying his head, like in some mental stock clearance sale where everything must go. He said he was depressed that if we ever advanced to a one-world government, it would only mean that national wars became civil wars, and he was enraged how nobody admitted that the single most irritating thing in our whole society was to be the captured person in a citizen's arrest. 
He tilted his chair backwards and said it was a further annoyance that a life strategy of minimising regrets only winds up guaranteeing you suffer the maximum. I wanted to carry him out of there and put him to bed, and I wondered how far I'd get if I picked him up in my arms and made for the exit. Now, as he tilted back so far the chair looked like it would topple over, he said he was sick of watching so much porn it was affecting his genome. He brought the chair slamming down on the cement floor. He was revolted, he said, at how he was so impatient for the population to drop below replacement level he could barely contain himself. And he was grossed out that our only evidence of moral evolution was how we'd learn to forgive ourselves during the sins we committed and not wait until after. It was at this moment I noticed that he'd fixed his eye on some point in the room. What was he looking at? He was saying that it was very telling that the only time people looked serious is when they were counting money or watching their child vanish around a corner. Sergeant Oakes nodded at me morosely and I had the impression he'd developed a stoop since I first entered. I thought it is us, not Aldo, who will crack under interrogation. Aldo swiped vaguely at his own face. I traced his focal point to either a tiny crack in the plaster on the wall or the fly beside it. He said that there was a reason that the kindness of nature isn't a saying in any language, that people mistreat dogs because they can't handle that type of devotion, that we're not the worst civilization ever to blight the earth, but we're the most sensitive. It struck me that every time he slammed the floor after tilting backwards, he edged the chair a few millimeters forward. He was saying that history isn't a litany of peoples and civilizations, it's a series of clinical trials, that the first sign of madness is inattention to don't walk signals, that the most significant impact on the digital world on our lives is we no longer wait for people to take their photographs when we want to pass in front of their cameras, we just fucking go. Aldo rocked back and forth and slammed the chair again, inching forward. Now I understood. He was, in all probability, aiming to lunge for the gun in Sergeant Oakes's holster in order to turn it on himself. Would he know how to take the safety off? If we intercepted him in time, would it be misinterpreted as an attempt on our lives? He said it was downright inscrutable that most people he met were as self-defeating as child pornographers who put their incriminating hard drives in for service. Now he seemed about to make a move. He said we are always exaggerating when we praise someone's integrity and that when you have poor intuition, everything is counterintuitive. Aldo's chair was less than a half metre from Sergeant Oakes, who hadn't noticed, busy as he was, needing his own left shoulder. Aldo said he was sickened that he only fell into lockstep with his fellow man during earthquakes and when the Olympics were held in his home city. He was sad that a return to naivete would require substantial damage to his prefrontal cortex and thought it plainly weird that nobody but him realised that Islamophobia is merely repressed harem envy. His voice, I thought, was now communicating nausea and transmitting it directly to the listeners. He was sorry he couldn't articulate if pressed why he was so sure his life was superior to the life of a cow and loathed the phrase, a serious but stable condition, which implied a generally positive outcome, while in reality meant someone's life was probably ruined, that they were to be a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. Take it from me, he said. Serious but stable is nothing to cheer about. So that is a, an introduction to Aldo and Liam, who is the storyteller, who is the Boswell to Aldo's Dr. Johnson, as it were. Yes. Um, and there's an awful lot of Aldo in that passage. So we know he's sort of suicidal, serially suicidal, serially accused of things. Mm. Unfortunate. He's like a sort of a, a human banana skin. Yeah, he, <laughs> he is somebody who's, who, who has a lot of bad luck. And in this book, I kind of wanted to write about luck, bad luck rather than fate, I guess. Um, and Aldo is also, he's a sort of a serial entrepreneur 
is somebody who is, um, as I said, pathologically uh, unlucky and who even his best friend Liam describes him as a sort of a, a, a well-known parasite and failure kind of man uh, who's declared multiple bankruptcies and you might catch um, sharing cigarettes in an alleyway with a masturbating hobo. But he, he manufactures his own misfortune, doesn't he? Because his ideas are rubbish. Well, he, he's trying his best. See, the book is about fear. And Aldo has these very specific fears. His idea is that the whole of society he sees as this narrow bridge on, and on either side lie two other societies, the hospital and the prison. And he fears that he could fall easily into one or the other. And he has an epiphany somewhere in his youth where he believes that the way to combat any kind of medical or legal problem is with money to be rich. So he sets out to become rich, only he hasn't quite got the ideas to do it. This is your second novel, and Aldo actually was originally in The Fraction of the Whole, which was your first, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the Guardian First Book Prize, indeed. That's true. I mean, he, well, what happened was when I finished, originally finished A Fraction of the Whole, it was a thousand pages long. And I sort of printed out these thousand pages and put it in the mailbox and sent it sort of halfway across the world to try and find agents. And um, after about 10 rejections, I realised that I had to cut something out. And there was this character that seemed to belong in a different novel. He, while in A Fraction of the Whole, which was a novel about the fear of death, every character was kind of acting in concert with these existential fears, whereas this other character seemed to just have a lot of bad things happen to him from sort of external sources. And when I started writing Quicksand, I realised the character I was writing had a lot in common with this other character. So, I mean, the reality is actually there's probably four actual pages from those 300 that I cut out that, that made it into this book. But the idea of the character in general is there. The shape of him. Now, you say he has a, a morbid fear of hospital and prison, but mm. he spends quite a lot of time in both of them. Yes, well, there's a while where he sort of... There's a moment where he says that, you know, he, when he walks past children's hospitals, he feels like this kind of sense of guilty relief because he's outgrown them, because um, he knows that he's sort of escaped that element. But yeah, I guess there is the question. One of the central questions of the book is, um, is bad luck self-harm by another name? So whether or not, you know, whether fearing something brings on those fears is, is something that I try and ask. I don't necessarily have answers, but I ask the questions. Um, he particularly spends time in a wheelchair, becomes paraplegic. Now you had a time when you thought you were going to be paralysed. Will you Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I spent a time where I, I was paralysed. Um, yes, and that sort of also relates to that phrase that I just read, that, you know, a serious but stable condition, which is definitely what I, I was in. Well, yeah, I had personally been um, living in Paris and walking down the street, and I, I just suddenly basically lost, uh, lost control, lost kind of uh, feeling in my legs and became paralysed by a sort of a spontaneous cervical spinal hemorrhage, they called it. And I was told by doctors that I, I either that I would not walk again or they weren't sure or that I probably wouldn't walk again. So I spent a couple of months with that kind of cloud of, of not knowing. But just a couple of months, unlike Aldo, who ends up... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Long term. That's right. I mean, I... Um, I, I was a month in hospital in Paris and then I got kind of flown to Australia um, 
to do sort of to the sort of spinal ward and to do rehabilitation. And it was it was two months, I think, before I kind of wiggled a toe. And then at that point they say, well, that's probably all you're going to move. But, you know, I think they, they have a sort of fear of legal liability to tell you anything. And then and then another toe. And then um, I kind of gradually learned to walk again. We've talked a lot about Aldo. We haven't talked at all about Liam. And I'm fascinated by Liam because he's a blocked writer who becomes a policeman. Yes. Um, but, but he, you know, he's responsible for telling this extraordinarily vivacious, mm. enormous story. Yeah, he becomes, well, the way he becomes a policeman, you see, I remember myself, he kind of follows closely to a trajectory that I had, which is in my 20s, which was, you know, career-wise, I, I sort of, I started at the bottom and moved my way sideways um, from kind of one minimum wage job to another. I mean, another way I describe it as kind of, chasing myself around the sort of sewer end of the job market, doing sort of telling all those kind of unskilled things. Because I believe that if, um, and as one character tells another character in this book, um, you know, if you want to be a, a sort of an artist, you know, don't learn a trade or acquire any kind of skill set, because if you have a fallback career, you'll eventually fall back on it. And Liam follows that advice until he researches a novel about a policeman and in, in, in the process of the research he joins the police academy and, um, and then when the novel fails he founds he's inadvertently acquired the skills of a New South Wales police officer. But he's telling this story. Yes, and so after you know, a while he realises that the greatest kind of character that he could write about is his friend Aldo. You know, one of the longest chapters in the book is called The Madness of the Muse and you know, every character in the story is an artist except Aldo. And, you know, we, we have these kind of ideas of the muses when we think of them as women. And I, I kind of wanted to have Aldo being the muse. And he, there are two other artists in this book, and that's his kind of girlfriend, first wife, Stella. Um, and then is his girlfriend, Mimi. And they're both artists as well who, who use Aldo as their, as their muse. So running through this is a series of meditations on what it is to be an artist and what it is to be a writer. For example, you have um, we make art because being alive is a hostage situation in which our abductors are silent and we cannot even intuit their demands. Yeah, I've, I've written quite a lot of those peppered throughout the book. It's funny, for me, the ideas, I guess, theories of art or aphorisms of art, I, I find them interesting and fun to write. And I know that for each statement that feels incredibly true the exact opposite might also be true and I, I see them as actually little fictions just little short stories like that one you just read out um, so I don't necessarily believe them myself but I think that they're very much like a lot of metaphysics they're fun to contemplate this book is concerned with art but it's also concerned with artists themselves and what kind of weird creatures they are Reviewing um, A Fraction of the Whole, Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote that you're profligate with your stories. Any one of the anecdotes, Martin's anecdotes in that case, would make a decent full-length novel and not the same kind of novel either. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think that's true of, of this novel as well. I mean, you've taken seven years to write it. It is mm -hmm. absolutely packed and teeming with ideas and with well-made sentences and mini-stories and epics and all sorts of things. Yes, I mean, that seems to be my method um, basically I come up with these ideas and these stories and I kind of lay them all down and as I, I write I kind of wait for the kind of nerve endings of one story to connect to the nerve endings of another because I, I feel 
thematically they all belong in the same book um, and I keep working until they do. And that must take a lot of time. Yes, that is the most time consuming. Well, I think about, you know, the writing process, this was difficult to write, as was a fraction of the whole. Um, and so I think about it as if, you know, when I think about, I went to university and I studied arts and I spent three years and I got, you know, a single piece of paper at the end, which was my degree. Similarly with writing quicksand, the first three years, at the end of it, I had a single piece of paper. That was just page one. Um, so I just spent a long time really on the first page of this novel. That was literally half the six years I spent writing it. But as it happens, You've there are... You just said you spent half the six years on the first page of this novel. Well, on a page one, not the page one is the difference, is because there are probably 87 page ones that have made it into the book. They're just not at the beginning. <laughs> that is a very Alderish sort of statement. <laughs> Well, I can't deny that, you know, he's he's partly me or I'm partly him. We're both figments of my imagination. It's very funny, this novel, but actually there's an awful lot of bad things in it. So there are lots of rapes. Mm. There's constant suicide theme, which you also had in A Fraction of the Whole. What's with the bad things? Well, the book is about suffering. It's about endurance. It's about exhaustion. And what is tricky for someone who is inadvertently a comic writer um, is that sort of the comedy is the sort of natural thing that happens when I put pen to paper. However, I cannot turn it on or off depending on whether I'm writing, you know, some lighthearted scene or some quite horrific scene. So, you know, I guess there is a point where you, you realize that you're playing with taboos or that there, which is not something that I kind of particularly want to set out to do because there's just that kind of idea you can, you know, you're writing, you're, you're writing humorously and then there's a rape scene and you're still writing humorously. And I know there's that kind of thing as can rape jokes be funny, but I put that into a larger question, um, which is, you know, can human suffering be funny? And I think if there's one thing you can, you can laugh at at all, you know, then then you can, it's, it's either all or nothing as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of humour is actually about the surprise of language rather than the topic. And a lot of pain, you know, with humour, it can be used to escape pain or it can be used to transfigure pain. And I sort of hope I'm doing the latter. Your grandparents came from Europe, they're Jewish yep. emigrants to Australia. To what extent is this a Jewish novel, and do you feel you're part of a Jewish tradition? Well, you know, in A Fraction of the Whole, there's one sort of line in the whole book, in the whole 711 pages, about being Jewish. And then in this novel, I've kind of made the characters sort of Catholic, Christian. You know, I, I feel that my personal God is, um, is partly a God of kind of my family, but mainly it's also Dostoevsky's God um, and Woody Allen's God and it's Graham Greene's God. So it's basically the gods that I've watched characters wrestle with in literature. And I found that um, that actually has had a lot more resonance to me personally than any service I slept through as a child. But you could see it as part of a sort of tradition of bellow and wrath, that the sort of laughing wild amid severest woe, shall we say. Oh, but I mean, I, obviously that's a quote mm. from Beckett, who has also yes. been cited in connection with your novel. Yeah, I think that, you know, if there was to be like 
25 influences those ones would definitely be in the in the in the top 10 um but no uh Saul Bellow and and Philip Roth absolutely but i you know it's hard it's it's kind of whatever angst or that that kind of reaction against suffering and humor um is in sort of planted in my dna um and that has something to do with childhood and adolescence rather than a conscious following of of a tradition and I'm going to ask you a pesky question, okay. which is you're, you're in your early 40s. You've written two novels. Hmm. You don't have another trade. No. <laughs> no. How, how do you live? You have, a, you have a small child. Yes. How do you live? Well, very, very carefully. It would be my answer. Um, yes. You know, there are, there are through fat years and lean years. And my intention is to... Uh, write a shorter novel in a shorter space of time. So we can expect the new Steve Tulls in three years, maybe? I'd say three to four years. Bang on. Tops. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks a lot. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Their designer templates let you easily create a unique and beautiful website that looks perfect on any device. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com slash guardian. Steve Toltz. Quicksand is published by Scepter. Richard Lee's Summer Choice was the first short story collection from Kate Clanchy. The Not Dead and the Saved and Other Stories. Quite a title there. Described by one reviewer as literary hand grenades, these stories are not exactly sunny reads, but they interrogate the world in which we live with wisdom and empathy. In the extract that follows, two Indian girls in England are trying to write a best-selling novel about two girls, a process which has them exploring their own identities. Me and Richana are in her room. We are doing our English. The title is the view from my window, but Rachana's view isn't much. Just the tar paper roof of the extension, then the garden, then rubbish, then the train tracks, shimmering. And that is only 50 words, even with shimmering put in at the end. We are waiting for a train to pass, so we can put that in too. When Rachana says, let's write a book instead, and I say, OK. You be the writer, says Rachana. You're good at English. You can use my pen with a pink fluffy top. This book will be a bestseller, maybe. Maybe they will make a film. I take up the pen. I get a new piece of paper. I say, OK, what will the book be about? Richana says about some friends, about girls our age, like in a good book, like in books about Mary, Kate and Ashley, about girls like us. Richana is my age and my shape and my cousin. We are short, fat Indian girls in West Ham shirts and we are not in books. The girls go on a picnic, Rachana says. They are on a summer camp and they have a canoe. They have an accident, I say. Yes, says Rachana, and maybe somebody dies. Not the main girl, but her friend, maybe. What's the main girl called, I say. Patricia, says Rachana. Trixie for short, and I think this is a stupid name, but I don't say so yet. Are the boys in the story, I say. Yes, says Rachana. There is a boy. His name is Rafe. He drives the rescue canoe. Listen, I say. Rafe's hair lies thickly on the collar of his polo shirt because now I am writing. Now the fluff on the pen bobs across the page like a rabbit and outside a train roars and passes. Rafe's hair falls over his face and he pushes it back with a slim tanned hand.
Rachana says, and he smiles, showing perfect teeth, and I write it down. Can we say about his chest, I say, where his shirt comes down, you know, in a V in the bottom. Sometimes you see a boy's chest. But Rachana says that's rude. OK, I say. I'm writing more about his hair. I'm writing, it's jet black with a sapphire gleam. No, says Rachana, Rafe is blonde. How can he be blonde if he's Indian, I say. He's American, says Rachana. Some Americans are Indian, I say. Lots of them are Uncle Salim and all the cousins. They're American Indian. That sounds funny, says Rachana. And anyway, in stories, the main boy's English, English-American. Let's write about the canoe. Why, I say. Why is it a summer camp? Why is it America? Because stories are in America, says Rachana. But I have the pen. I write. Rafe pushed back his lustrous black hair from his tanned forehead and smiled. I write, Samir had seen a beautiful girl. Her lustrous black hair bounced on her shoulders with a sapphire gleam. She had a gorgeous, voluptuous figure under her West Ham shirt. She was 13 years old. Her name was Rama. You can't put yourself in a book, says Rachana. That is all wrong. But I say, look, I just did. So, um award-winning poetry, a memoir, a BBC short story prize, congratulations, yeah. a novel, and now this, a collection of short stories. Your, your agent must be tearing her hair out. I think I'm very annoying, yeah. <laughs> Just when she thought she'd got you into the novel, no. Well, no, the, the short stories, they made me write the novel first. I was writing the short stories beforehand and, you know, have been writing the short stories for some time. This is kind of 10 years' worth of short stories, which I have been allowed to gather into book and publish, which actually these days I think is very lucky uh, you've kind of earned yourself the right to do that to by do the, that yeah, yeah. There you go. I mean because we all say we like short fiction so much don't we I mean I myself would say I'm a bit of a fan of short fiction in particular but why is it so much more difficult to shift copies I I don't know I think it's a bit like poetry I mean poetry is being more read more consumed on the other hand more than half my poems are freely available on the web so I don't really see why people buy my book in a way you think it's it, people basically nicking it I think people, yeah, I think we can consume more short fiction. It's, it's up on your website, very excellent short stories. You can get excellent short stories up on the New Yorker website. I think people consume them perhaps more like that. And the appetite for buying a book, people find lots of ways out of doing that. I was wondering if it's partly because of the kind of intense reading experience of a, of a collection of short stories. I mean, a short story can really, if it packs a punch, it, it really gets you. And it does it again and again and again. So it's a bit like being repeatedly hit in the guts. Is that, is that what reading The Not Dead and the Saved is like? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, because you wouldn't want it to be bland, would you? No. We'd want each story to deliver, but each story, if it does deliver, is that's quite hard work for a it, reader. It is quite, and I think The Not Dead and the Saved changes the kind of short story it's writing quite a lot, which does make it quite an intense read, so that it doesn't deliver one sort of short story over and over again. You'd never have got this past as linked short stories or anything like that. They're very diverse. There's, I mean, there's a certain amount of uh, defiance in the face of this kind of commercial pressure in the book. There's that marvellous moment when your agent in the book says she wants Patrick Gale every time. Well, Patrick Gale's a wonderful writer and a wonderful guy. But he's also, you can imagine, he is what people, he's that particular agent wants. Um, that's Brunty Country, which is, is um, a story. That's when I first got an agent, because I was, I was published 15 years before I got an agent. And then I was very thrilled and I thought it was very exciting and very good fun. And I also got an iPhone about the same time. So there's that story um, which is about a literary agent stumbling up onto the Yorkshire Moors and looking and she finds the Brontes. Um, and so it's, it's, All it's, crazy. It's, it's, <laughs> and then starts thinking what kind of thing they might write, you know, and they, they prove very difficult.
Very, very awkward indeed. I was, I was wondering if you feel, in some sense, at home in the short story. Does it, does it suit your kind of poetical rhythm of writing, of working? Probably. I think when my novel and my memoir are sort of cobbled or drywalled together from bits... And I think I've, I mean I think they're cobbled and drywalled quite well, so that they they have a pleasing architecture and they hold up and the arch holds up. But um, it, it is wonderful to be able to write some, a story just as short as the one I've just read, and to be able to just leave it like that, um, and not to have to connect it to, you know, reading surveys or personal experience or anything, but just to to give you to give you the story, the, the very nub of it at the length it needs, at the length it wants but to the, be. Ian McEwan once famously said that the novella he was talking about was kind of a perfectible thing in a way that the novel isn't. It's kind of a rambling, bloated, ill-shaven giant. He said, which, "Is that also part of the appeal that you can get it right? You can get it perfect. I'm a bit of a compulsive rechecker and a rewriter. You know, you know, I move form because I'm very, very interested in form." And that's why I, I, I wanted to write a novel because I wanted to write something that was in that shape. I had an idea that that was, was that shape and poems come in their forms. And then within the short story, there are so many other forms and it is wonderful to be able to go back and polish them and push them and get them into exactly the right form and get the two things singing together. Because it's not as if there's any kind of lack of ambition. I mean, you might think that the novel was the obvious place to deal with the passage of time, the effect of one generation on the other. But that's one of the threads that, that runs through the collection. Is, was that one of your ambitions, to try and do that in this short space? I never think of it like that. I always think I have an idea and then I have a shape it wants to go into and then you find out later what you're writing about. I mean, I was a bit surprised how many of them are about intergenerational things and death and the passage of time. That wasn't really... I didn't set didn't out set to... set out to do that? No, I don't think you ever do. You set out with a... I mean, they're not dead and the saved. That was about a particular character in a way, but that, that mother and that son. Um, they seemed like real people and then I wanted to tell what happened to them. The, the people that you find or the voices you find are just in those situations. They're yeah, interested in they're, that they're stuff. doing that thing and they're attached to those images. So the, the story at the beginning, Aunt Mary and the Child, which is um, about intergenerational illnesses, I really started out knowing that it was about a little girl going to the swimming pool with her auntie and then everything else emerged as I wrote and rewrote the story. But that's what's so magical about different forms. So as you put your writing into the form, the form gives you something back. There's another thread in it, which is kind of voices from the edge, the marginalised. Was mm. that any kind of ambition? I think that's just one of my interests. Yeah. I mean, that story I've just read is really about students I teach. Um, and I teach in a very diverse and interesting school. And these, I, it's not, I mean, it is a problem that, that, that our migrant pupils persistently feel that they ought to write stories with white people in them. And as soon as you get them onto, in fact, writing about their own experience, that's when they get hold of the pen and that's when magic happens and that's when talent happens. I mean, I, I have read these novels. The, the thing about the rescue canoe and the and the main girl and the people called Trixie and the, the strange deformed American summer camps, I've read quite a few novels written by children <laughs> with exactly that content. So... <laughs> That's not really an invention. But it's not that you feel that we ought to be breaking down barriers or giving people a voice. I don't think we should give people a voice. I think people need to find a voice and um, claim their voice. And that's what happens. People people find their names in these stories over and over again. That's the thing I noticed when I got to the end, that I'd, I'd done that over and over again, that people had found their name and decided where they f sat with it. I was wondering if this kind of outsider's perspective comes at all naturally to you as a, as a Scot living um, in England. I don't know if I was because I'm a Scot living in England. Um, um, as a, I don't know. I mean, I, I think of myself as a very lucky, privileged, middle-class person. But um, maybe it's because I'm 
slightly, maybe because I'm a woman in literary culture, maybe it's because I'm Scottish, but I've always been interested in the other side. And there was a blog post by somebody on the Not Dead and the Saved who said, it's such a ridiculous story, it's supposed to be about a young man and his death, and really you can't understand what's going on in it at all. And then I realised what I'd done, in fact, was, of course it's not the young man's story, it's, it's the mother's story. And it's, it isn't about the arc and the death and the love story, it's about the part of the story that you don't usually hear, which is the, the people who aren't supposed to be the main, the main girl, like in that story. The person literally sitting yeah. just out of focus, yeah. out of shot. who's there is, yeah. is where the story starts. And I'm not interested in the main girl, I guess. But, you know, you know <laughs> why that is, I don't know. I'm just wondering if yeah. that, uh, that sense of being uprooted at some point. Probably, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think Scottish people would tell you I was never that Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I was always on the margin. Is that sense of Scottishness shifted at all since the referendum, since the election? Since um, I found the referendum very upsetting. I always very much disliked Scottish nationalism because as a person who was slightly English, it was always directed against me. And I had the very direct experience of not being able to work in Scottish schools because I had an English degree. Well, not a degree in English literature, but a degree from an English mm. university. And I hate it that I can't do my job in my native country. And I hate it that um, I hate all those layers of prejudice and anti-Englishness. So I, I, no, I, I dislike the referendum very much, and I, what it says to me is you can never go home again. One of the stories, this problem is for you, mm. it reminded me of, of a piece of your non-fiction I read a couple of years ago called mm. Shaquilla's Head. I mean, it's a very mm. different story from a different perspective, and but the aim is similar in a way. It's to explicitly present the reader with a problem. What's the relationship between those two pieces? Um, I think I, in, in my memoir as well, in Antigone and Me, that's another way of saying this problem is for you, that... that we don't just there are things in our society that make me very angry I suppose and that seem like bleeding holes that we can't address and pain that we don't even look at and I suppose that that is using fiction and non-fiction to say look here is this problem and not to give in in any way not to say oh but it's okay because the child has found a voice and the child is being expressed or the child is being sorted out because there's lots of things that aren't sorted out at all the, the pain is just there I'm wondering if that shifted perspective from in the piece of non-fiction, which was told, broadly speaking, from mm. the teacher's point of view, to these pieces, to the piece, uh, the, mm. this problem is for you, which is told from in this testimony of the two yeah. voices that, of yeah. the children involved, whether that's a shift that you make often between the material from your own life when you turn it into fiction. Mm. I think the temptation is always there for me to ventriloquise and to go into other people's heads and to tell the story from that point of view. And I think that what's good about my non-fiction is the tension between me trying to sort myself out with that and remind myself of what is actually going on and I think that's when my best non-fiction is like that when when I'm, I'm having a fight with Kate who wants to empathize and give the voice to people and the person who pulls back and says no but actually there's this and this and this and you're quite far away from them so in, in a way um, this problem is for you or the book instead allows me to indulge some of those things <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, whereas in the non-fiction you feel you have to maintain that distance. It's about, it's about the distance and about drawing attention to the distance. Because the distance is part of the problem. Yeah, because the distance is part of the problem. So in a way that this is giving in and letting myself you know, tell a story. Uh, for all the difficult subject matter you've got, there's also an optimism. There's a belief in the power of literature. I think there's a belief in the power of, yeah, saying I am. Get hold of the pen. Yeah, don't write the one about the main girl. Write the one about you. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, you've got the, it's Rama putting herself in the book, isn't it? Yeah, or, that's right. Or, or Catherine Mansfield's collection, floating on the great green waves of time. Yeah, tough and small and unsinkable as a black-headed gull. I mean, that's, is that that that's, the aspiration? That's where you want to be. Yeah, I mean, that's a strange story. That one, that's kind of non-fiction and fiction. That's a story about my grandmother who came from New Zealand in 1919. So, her relationship to Catherine Mansfield, who came 10 years before, and all those things about. I, I mean, so I fantasize them onto a book together and into a, that's into a boat yeah that, that is fiction absolutely but uh, the fiction falls apart and it's about um yeah it, it's about thinking i suppose that my grandmother's the unimportant person and Catherine Mansell was the important person and the difficulties and the grumpiness of her and it, it yeah it's fun <laughs> so what are you working on next uh, some ya vampire thriller um, no, I wish. I, honestly, if I could write such a thing, then I would. I'm I'm doing a bit of radio adaptation at the moment, and I've got another novel that I want to write. And I also, I think, I would like to write some nonfiction about schools. You know, from that piece that you saw, those kind of pieces. But as no one's actually ever managed to publish that piece yet, I don't know. It's uh, it's unpublishable, isn't it? So, where does it fit? Uh, the, the finding the hole, isn't it? Yeah. Is that, that the, the problem with publishing, that we haven't got the right holes or the holes need to be found? I think I think they are there and there's lots of people that, that still read, which is a wonderful thing, and people read this book and people read my non-fiction. But I think there's something, it's something about sort of investigative journalism and non-fiction and then there's stuff, I think it's very womany and girly, my stuff. I think maybe, so I mean, you know, the LRB won't, I sent Shakila's head to them and they sent it back saying they didn't publish fiction and so they didn't obviously didn't realise that it was non-fiction and I wrote it back said it was non-fiction but then that, you know I think that's being a woman really oh. writing about girls so that it has to be that, that sort of apparent softness of my subject matter that I'm writing about girls and schools and things like that um, and then, but also, there's a sort of unacceptable toughness which makes it harder to publish in other places. Kate Clancy, and the Not Dead and the Saved and other stories is published by Picador. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Kate, Steve Tolks, and Richard Lee. If you've been away on your own holidays, do catch up with our comic fiction series of podcasts from earlier in the summer. Dave Eggers, Will Self, and Sheila Hetty are among the writers featured. You can find them by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. For now, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Eva Krishak, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.